0: This is Danny Anderson, Assistant Professor of English at Mount Aloysius College, welcoming you again to another episode of the Sectarian Review Podcast. Uh, Today's Satan's Kingdom looks like the five-paragraph essay, um, as it turns out. And so we are, um, uh, I'm very pleased to bring you today an interview with John Warner, who has a couple of books out right now. Uh, One is called Why They Can't Write, and the other is called The Writer's Practice. Uh, And these books kind of work in tandem um, for reasons that we'll get into in a bit, And, and so this Episode I think is going to be of special interest to my many listeners who work in and around education um but also I think anybody who's just sort of interested in the life of the mind and how to sort of pursue that fully I think you're going to find a lot to like about this book Why They Can't Write I am um kind of giddy um I, uh, forgive the fanboy uh, tone of my voice today I've been a big fan of John Warner's for a long time he writes for um Inside Higher Ed which I've made a habit of reading um for as long as I can remember now, um, every day. And so he writes the uh, Inside Higher Ed blog um just visiting and so um but in addition to that he is a columnist for the chicago tribune a uh and a editor at large for mcsweeney's internet tendency uh in addition to these two books that we'll be talking about today he also has a novel out there called the funny man and a collection of short stories called tough day for the army and a lot of other really great credits um out there so let me just welcome to the show right now john warner how's it going
1: I'm good. I hope I live up to that intro.
0: <laughs> well, I'm sure you will. Um, like I said, anybody who uh, in, runs in my circles, teaching English especially, has probably been reading Just Visiting regularly. And I have ever since I've been in grad school, I think. And so it's been a, a big um, kind of influence on the way, I think. But I also find myself in kind of utter agreement <laughs> with your <laughs> observations about higher education in general, but the teaching of writing in particular. So. Um, So let me kind of just get into uh, the subject of the book today. Uh, You are a uh, generational, (laughs) multi-decade professional uh, writing, uh, teaching in uh, writing practice. And so let me ask you from the beginning, why is writing and the teaching of writing so important?
1: The the way I think of writing, and I I say this in both books, um, writing is thinking. So when I write, I'm, in the, I'm engaging in an active process of thinking. So that involves uh, me seeing the base unit of writing being the idea. Um, I think sometimes writing teachers will say the base unit of writing is the sentence. But for me, the thing that comes before the sentence is the idea, and the, the sentence is merely an attempt at expressing that idea. And so I start with an idea or sometimes even uh, something smaller than an idea, a notion like something that is just nagging at my brain and I want to figure it out. And, and the way I figure things out is to write. Um, and what I've realized in examining my own practice, both as a writer and as a teacher, is that having the opportunity to learn that way is um, fun <laughs> and, and liberating and empowering in, in the sense that if I can sit down and I'm allowed to write and think, I can make sense of things that otherwise seem senseless and uh, express those to other people to see if they find my ideas sensible or if they don't, uh, what ideas they think are sensible in return. And so it is both a um, act for the self, right? Like, like a way that we can use to figure out what we think and what we believe and, and what we value in the world and a tool by which we can express those things to the the world and hear back from others who either agree or or differ from us. So if if we're going to um, teach that in school, and every school does teach it, I think we should look at it from that lens as opposed to a purely kind of reductive skill, Mm. like can you make sentences or can you pass a standardized assessment making these sentences. I think it's just a much deeper and more interesting thing like that than that. And I think students, if they are introduced to that aspect of writing, um, tend to agree and have similar experiences to what I've had in my life as a writer.
0: Yeah. uh, Is it Wayne Booth, I think, that refers to writing as thinking in print? Uh, And and Mm -hmm. I think that this is something that is um, – anybody who teaches writing – probably innately knows that and approaches it that way. And where we run into conflicts is with folks who see only the product, um, the final product um, that's to be evaluated for whatever grade as what's important. Right. And, and so um, as an educational tool, though, f- to grapple with abstract and difficult ideas, there's nothing quite like writing um, to assist in that process. And I think you come from a much more process oriented approach to writing.
1: Yeah, I mean, it, it, we're, we're on audio, so you can't see me, um, breaking my neck, nodding along with what you're saying. But there is, uh, it, it is about the process, right? When, when we privilege only product and we judge only product, like the five paragraph essay, uh, we incentivize students to take shortcuts, to do imitations, to perform a kind of, um, simulation of writing rather than to do the things writers do when they write. And it's just doing them a real disservice, not necessarily because it harms their writing skills. Um, I've got some research I cite in the book that that shows students make about the same number of errors as they ever did. Mm-hmm. They're maybe a little bit different because of the nature of of technology and how writing is mediated through that technology. But the skills aren't a problem, but what I noticed in my classes was my students' attitudes towards writing were the problem. They came into the class being discouraged about writing, seeing writing as merely a kind of hoop to jump through to move to the next assignment and the next assignment. They had no concept of themselves as writers, as people who could express something from themselves through writing, and that's kind of what spurred me to, to go deeper into the investigations that ultimately led to the books. Not that I thought students couldn't write. Students always struggle with writing. Um, non-students struggle with writing. I struggle with writing. I was struggling with writing just this morning. And, uh, you know, I, I, I wrote a line and the thing I was working on, like, this is not making any sense. Do better than this when you come back after lunch. So the struggle, the process, that's, that's what writing is. So, so we have to make space for students to be able to do that by honoring that process. So I couldn't agree with you more.
0: Yeah. Um, and by holding this product up um, as something that's evaluable, um, evaluatable maybe is the correct word, um, we're kind of reducing the thought to something that can be easily measured, um, kind of leaving the most important part of the process underdeveloped. And and you have one of my favorite lines that I've read in in recent years, uh, very early in the book, uh, when you're talking about sort of the the formulaic types of writing that we ask students to mimic, um, not actually create. You um, you say we are asking students to write Potemkin essays, fakes designed to pass surface level muster that are revealed as hollow facades when inspected more, more closely. Um, and I just think that's a perfect way to kind of capture the the, the banality of of what we're teaching here. Um, and so yeah. go ahead.
1: Yeah, students, they're just, they're not interested in, in what they're writing when they produce those things. They will do it because we ask them to and school tells them it's important and all that. But, uh, in my experience, when I talk to students about what they've, they've been asked to do, they know above anybody else that it's not meaningful or, or in the sense it's only meaningful because it's required for, for a grade or, or the phrase I've been They've been using, and I, I, I think maybe I didn't hit on this in time to get in the book. Maybe it's in there. Um, they know it counts, but it doesn't matter. Yeah, and they they treat it that way. So so we what we receive we can't we can't expect to get anything other than what we receive. The the, the Potemkin essay actually is the the best we could hope for because it at least looks. Upon surface level inspection, like writing, um, you know, sometimes you get even worse. It, it doesn't even stand up as a Potemkin FA,
0: right? But it allows the bean counter something to quantify, right? And, so, and, and yeah, that's right.
1: <laughs> something to something to count and something to judge against the rubric and yeah and um, aggregate and graph and um, yeah, it's just it, it's it's not good for students, and I don't think it's particularly good for us as instructors either.
0: No, no. Um, at, the, at this point in the semester everybody's on their last nerve because of having, (laughs) having to read these sorts of uh, this sort of work. Right. And so, um, or produce those, that sort of work as well. Um, Well, um, one of the great things about this book is that it isn't strictly um, aimed at the problem with specifically writing. There's an entire kind of ecosystem um, that is going wrong uh, professionally that you kind of, Set up the, the analysis of writing on top of, um, and so you spend a good deal of time explaining how professional precarity um, factors in to kind of poor or inadequate writing instruction. So, in, in other words, the sort of adjunctification of uh, of higher ed um, is a major problem here. And do you want to talk a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, this this really came about. Um... You know, because of my, my career where I, I've had, um, a series of full-time visiting appointments, um, at, at now four different institutions, um, in varying roles. And in, in fact, in different departments, I, I worked in the communication department, not English at, at, um, Virginia Tech. And in those positions, I experienced firsthand what it means to have too many students and not enough time. Um, particularly in my years at Clemson University when I spent six years there and I was teaching four, four, four classes a semester. Um, I would have, uh, between a hundred and a hundred and thirty students, depending on the mix of writing and literature classes. But the literature classes, as far as I was concerned, were writing because I assigned essays because I didn't know how to assess their engagement with literature any other way. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, the compromises you begin to enact in order to um, be able to do this, the uh, time not spent doing things like speaking with students in one-on-one conferences, begins to become very, very apparent. And uh, I, I say this in the book, I've said this many times in many other places, if institutions or parents or the public or the government wants to improve writing instruction, the single best thing they could do, probably after making sure all children are um, properly fed and have had enough uh, rest and material security, after that is to reduce the number of students each writing teacher is responsible for, probably by about half. Mm. Uh, And if you did that, we could um, engage in the kind of practices we know work, which is working closely with students, either one-on-one or in small groups. Being able to read their work and respond to it and give them uh, meaningful feedback. And if you have 120 students, this is um, less possible than if you have 60 students or 45 students. Uh, I think it's the NCTE. I could be wrong on which writing um, advocacy organization this is, but I think it's the NCTE. They recommend the maximum number of writing students per instructor per semester is 60 with a maximum of 20 per section. And they recommend uh, 15 per section for a total of 45. Mm. And um, very rarely in my career did I have, did I work under those circumstances. Um, and, and often in my career, I worked at, at um, double those numbers. And there are people who I have talked to who work at triple those numbers who have 180 Students or even 200 students, where they're adjuncting and working across multiple institutions to cobble together a living. So the, the raw numbers is a, is a big part of it. It's it's uh, what my friend uh, Susan Shorn, who um, directs writing across the curriculum at the University of Texas, she calls it teaching in thin air.
2: Mm. So
1: it's like you're constantly gasping for air as you are also trying to trying to teach. You know, as though well you're climbing Everest without oxygen. So that's a big part of it. And the other part is if the laborer is, is precarious, um, they cannot build roots in the community. They cannot develop their own practice and teaching. Uh, they may have to be driving Uber, uh, in their off hours. Um, I, I have now had two Uber drivers who have been, um, not college, but, um, uh, high school teachers yeah. who were grading papers in between doing rides. And so it's it's clear that this sort of systemic issue is holding us back. Um, I had to put that stuff in the book, um, not just sort of labor precarity, but, but other issues um, that I think are, are a problem, because to not address them felt like a disservice. Um, failing to acknowledge them and just saying we can fix it with pedagogy felt like a lie. And so as I Planned to the book and wrote the proposal, it became a bigger and bigger part of what I felt I wanted and needed to say.
0: Yeah. And, and just as, I think when we're kind of wrong to blame necessarily individual students kind of on a moral level because they're, they don't care enough to, to do well. Um, it's they're part of the same system that um, makes the, the, the instruction also uh, not in an ideal situation, right? There's a whole systemic, in other words, there's a whole systemic, um, set of relationships going on here that are really inhibiting our ability to do what we know works best. Um, And and so I think that's the kind of um, important role that that um, those that section of the book plays uh, in this uh, in this book. And I can tell you from firsthand experience this semester, I I typically have 20 to 25 students per class um, and upwards of 100 or so students. So pretty normal, um, I guess, um, workload. This semester I was teaching an off um, off sequence um, first year writing class, like first semester freshman comp class. Um, which meant that it was kind of under enrolled from the beginning because it was in the second semester rather than the first semester. Um, And it was kind of populated with people who were probably at the most risk um, uh, of not being able to finish college. Right. Um, And so um, I ended up with only six people. Uh, in that class. and And I gotta tell you, I've never had a more gratifying teacher teaching experience because of my ability to work with them in depth one on one. and I've seen just so many leaps and bounds in their not only the product that they're producing, but their excitement about what they're producing. Um, and it was uh, really able yeah. to kind of achieve something that we should all be striving for, but it was because of just a fluke of circumstances.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's, it's amazing when you have the chance to experience that. And I've had similar occasions, not in first year writing, but where I've been assigned like a sort of upper level seminar. Um, and you just have fewer students and all of a sudden so many more things become possible. Uh, and, and the, you know, your point about the, how the systems impact the students as well, I think is very, very important. Like, if students don't have the time and opportunity to do their best work, the instructors can't do the best work. I, I, as you were, as you were raising that issue, I was thinking about a student I had, uh, this was probably three or four years ago who was, um, writing his, um, assignments for the class on his phone in between making deliveries for Jimmy Johns mm-hmm. from, um, 11 p.m. to 2 p.m., 2 a.m. in the morning. And, that is not going to be um, as worthwhile as a student who has the time to sit down and, and do the work. Um, he was um, perhaps extreme. He was a little bit older. He, had, he was um, um, self-supporting, both paying his way through college and uh, responsible, responsible for all his own living expenses. So he had, but you know, he was working 40 hours a week between two jobs and trying to go to school full time. And what could we really expect in terms of engagement from, from a student in that circumstance? Um, he was doing the absolute best he could. Um, but the the number of compromises he had to make for his learning was, was unbelievable.
0: Yeah. And so the, the same kind of compromises then, uh, they have to make pragmatic decisions about their time, right? Just as, mm-hmm. um, instructors who are living uh, a very precarious existence have to make those same kinds of pragmatic decisions about what they can provide the students. So the whole system is set up almost in a perfect storm for failure <laughs> in too, in too mm-hmm. many cases. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, and so um, one thing I wanted to talk about you, you know, just visiting is the name of your blog, right? And so you're sort of um, put you foreground your kind of, marginal position within academia you're sort of part of it but also a bit outside of it um and and i wonder if you think that that kind of um life on the edge of the institution gives you a kind of perspective from which you can kind of ethically critique it uh in ways that folks who are kind of embedded within the machinery are not even kind of aware (laughs) of um
1: yeah, I, I think so. I mean, I, I love that, the, the way you have sort of phrased that, embedded in the machinery, right? <laughs> because I do think one of the advantages I have not being embedded in the machinery is I have the, the opportunity to see the machinery more clearly. Mm. Um, and I am not beholden to the machinery. I, I never had to um, go through the steps of pursuing tenure, and so, I could do the kind of writing that um, was a combination of interesting to me, and because I, I was a contingent faculty member and was not paid as you know as a, as a tenured faculty member would be, um, that, that brought in income. And so, the ability to sort of look at that while not participating in it by being close enough to it, I think, has given me something of a of a unique perspective. I'm also sort of uh since I was a child had a um let's call it unflattering um tendency towards self righteousness. Uh <laughs> that I I I think um I I can be a bit of a moral scold on these issues, uh, while recognizing that I I am as big a hypocrite as anybody um on certain things at certain times. So I'm also kind of just willing to to point at the machinery and say, this is messed up. Like this is not Right, We need to do something differently. Um, I have this outside sense of of myself as somebody who should say these things and sometimes I get extremely tired of of hearing myself and in fact have stopped or lessened uh, the number of times I write about some of these issues on the blog. Um, So I think think that all adds up into what I end up writing about. But what I hear from from many people who are closer to the inside of the machinery is that it, it reflects their experience as well. Um, where those who have to pursue tenure find that process not liberating, but deadening. Um, achieving tenure is not a celebration, but a, a cause for crisis. they mm. wonder, was this all worth it? Right? This, this climb I, I made and I reached the peak and now what? Um, I, I, I was working on the, the post I was working on that I was struggling with this morning. Was, um, examining whether or not institutions really are well set up to allow people to pursue things that are meaningful to them in teaching and learning. Um, it got, it got really dark for a while. So I had to, I had to, <laughs> I had to put it aside to see if I could find some, some section of light. So I, I, I think that is part of it. And part of, part of it too is, um, and I hope I'm clear about this on the blog, I've had the luxury to pause and reflect on my circumstances because my life as a, as a contingent um, instructor has not been precarious economically and financially. It could have been, but um, I'm lucky to be partnered with somebody who's always earned a good wage. I've um, had enough writing opportunities to kind of bring in a, a, equivalent salary to teaching or better. And so I've always been able to cobble together a non-precarious existence, but having been able to do that, I think in some way it sensitizes me to the old there, but for the grace of God go I, mm. right? Like if um, one or two things were different, I would be um, driving my Uber mm. or um, would have had to have left teaching um, much, much earlier or not be able to afford to go back Um I'm going to be teaching a first year experience class in fall um, because I miss teaching and want to do it again. But it's, you know, it's for a, a wage that is ridiculous. It's, you know, it, it'll be eight or $9 an hour when it's all factored in. Right. It, it'll, it'll be it's essentially volunteer work that I, I do because I think the work is valuable and I can afford to. Um, but the notion that, that teaching college should be reduced to volunteer work for people who can afford it is not healthy for um, anybody. And I I even feel guilty about, about doing it. The only reason I'm doing it is it's a first year experience class that would not exist if I wasn't teaching it. Mm -hmm. Right. I proposed the class and they do it. Um, I think somebody like me going and teaching first year composition for adjunct wages in a way that would support the perpetuation of those wages is probably, um, a, a, a not fantastic moral choice and so thus far i'm, I'm choosing not to not to do it mm.
0: yeah um that's uh, it's a really challenging situation and it's something i think that the the institution as as, as a whole academia uh, depends too much on the kind of almost priesthood calling uh to do <laughs> so, to some higher work right um and and therefore yeah. can be exploitive uh and and i think in the end, it's not good for the students, um, who are supposedly the people we're serving. Um, and so, um, yeah, it's a, it's a challenge and it, and it really is, it does underlie a lot of, um, the challenges, um, in the writing classroom itself. Um, one thing that you do talk about, I think that you have perspective on that people who are in the kind of the rat race of the, of the professional machinery, um, Are probably less attuned to, you talk about fads, educational fads, uh, and and you talk about how they kind of come and go. uh, There's some sort of hot new approach to approaching some problem, be it grit, be it uh, this or that. (laughs) Um, And then everyone realizes uh, it really doesn't work out to be that case. And even the people who propose these uh, these solutions end up saying, yeah, I was totally wrong about that. And and you give us um, story after story about that. One of the ways in which uh, that instantiates is in educational technology um and so what is the allure of educational technology um and why do these endeavors like consistently fail to live up to the hype and really do damage along the way
1: oh boy that's a that's a big one um i mean a a lot of it is embedded in the larger i think american culture where we love solutions right yeah like, if somebody comes in and says, I got a solution for your problem, we're like, right on, man, bring it, and let's do it. <laughs> and uh, with particularly with education technology, many of the ed tech companies or the players. Now, this is not true of all education technologists. There's many education technologists who are dedicated to trying to solve the same sorts of problems you and I are talking about and are student-focused and looking at that. But when we look at ed tech companies, particularly ones that are rooted in a kind of Silicon Valley ethos, they are trying to make a product to bring to market. And the moment they know the product is done, as soon as they can sell it. And there is a difference between a product you can sell and a product that works. Mm. And uh, that gap will never be closed. And it's, I think, what explains a lot of this sort of lurching around looking for these sort of faddish solutions as, as embedded in education technology. Um I talk about personalized learning in the book and, you know, I, I turned the manuscript in well over a year ago saying, here comes the next thing, it's personalized <laughs> learning. And uh I think it was last week or the week before there was a story in the New York Times about a school district in Kansas that is rebelling against the uh summit learning personalized learning platform developed in in conjunction with facebook's engineers about the damage it's doing to their students uh, that district adopted it because it was going to be given to them free and they were looking for solutions and free sounds good so these sorts of market mechanisms the the sort of power of of um, the people who have money, like Silicon Valley, like Mark Zuckerberg, who, who can fund these things, and, and Bill Gates, who can fund these things, I think have an overwhelming influence on the sorts of things that um, take off and become a, a possible um, product in, and come into our schools. But this stuff has never been tested and validated the way we would expect and should demand. Mm-hmm. And so it whiffs. Um, it, it comes in, um, there's a, a big hullabaloo about um, the iPads and the software and the this and the that, and then uh, the students lose the iPads and break the iPads and hack the iPads, so they're playing games, they're playing Fortnite on the iPads rather than doing their math tutorials, and uh, hindsight comes in and says, oh yeah, I guess that's really, we should have thought about that, and Um, I want to say like, uh, yeah, you should have thought of that (laughs) because there's, there's a lot of people who do think of it. I I did a blog post a while back, um, sort of snarky uh, satirical one where I said I was going to start an ed tech consultancy and, uh, the name of it was going to be, yeah, that won't work bro incorporated (laughs) where, uh, they would bring their products to me. They would demonstrate them, and then I would issue a one-line report that will say, yeah, that won't work, bro. <laughs> and um, they'll pay me one-tenth of whatever they were going to invest in the product, and I would still be a millionaire many times over. <laughs> uh, granted, I am extremely skeptical, skeptical about this stuff, and um, the ed tech that has made headway in writing, I think, is, is especially pernicious. Things like... Um, turn it in for plagiarism checking or even worse Turnitin's authorship investigate which compares the writing your students turned in earlier in the semester to later in the semester to make sure they're not engaging in contract cheating i think that's horrible mm. algorithmic grading is um an abomination i don't think students should write anything that's not going to be read by at least one human um so I, I'm, I may be at an extreme on this. Now I, I do like technology that helps students. I think technology can be great in terms of students learning how to access information, use it for their own devices, share their work with other audiences. But the intervention of an algorithm to teach writing is, is kind of nonsensical to me because it's, it's an act of communication right um, and all algorithms can do is count and when we respond to writing we don't count we are our full selves so yeah I, I i would you know any sort of writing program that says we think we want to introduce this um technology tool to help our students i'm just think uh, my reflexive response is, is that won't work mm-hmm. why what 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 could you do instead that you think would be, would be useful. And my strong suspicion is investing more in the human labor side of the equation would have much greater benefits than anything connected with education technology.
0: Yes. Um spending that Zuckerberg money on, you know, the people teaching the classes, right. And, and putting them yeah. in better positions to succeed, we know will work. Right. And so, but there's yeah. this, almost a inexorable draw towards um, some sort of technology that automates things um, and makes them proficient or whatever accountable. Uh, and I think there's some almost irresistible force to those technologies because of um, sort of assessment culture. I think there's a, a way in which we want to um, make sure that we're teaching our students well. And so we develop a curriculum around what is accessible and therefore eliminate what is really valuable in, in, in the process um, because it's not necessarily accessible. Um, and I think um, I picked this up from Bill Redding's book, uh, The University in Ruins, years ago when I read that. There was uh, something, he's, his critique of assessment is that um, it necessarily tries to eliminate that which it cannot um, account for, right? And, and so, um, and that becomes a problem in writing when so much of the success is really found in the failure along the way towards success. And so, um, um, let's have a, a computer grade our papers for us. <laughs> yep. Um, so um, the ultimately, though, I guess what we're getting at though is a, a problem with how we're defining what education is as an institution um, and whether what it's for. Um, is it to kind of empower students to kind of grow, almost in a spiritual sense, but uh, in a personal sense at least, uh, to um, become what they can be and, and reach their potential? Or are we training people to be cogs in a machine, sort of, right? And so um, one, one thing that I do, I've taken to do for several years, probably too long, and I should – um, fix, you know, mix it up a little bit, but I open up my intro to lit slash rhetoric class that we teach here with having them read in the first day uh, Bernard Malamud's story, A Summer's Reading. I don't know if you've ever read that. Um, I have, yeah. Which is a really wonderful story about education in its purest form being something self-motivated and just sort of unaccountable and you don't even know what's going to come of it, right? And it's a very beautiful, inspiring story about education. And then the next day we read Franz Kafka's uh, report for an academy, which is um, about this ape who learns to speak human language. And he kind of puts forth a a vision of education, which has actually reduced him to a cage. Uh, And and so because he's just – mimicking what he thinks the people want. And, and so, and he realizes that freedom is never really possible. Um, and so I put those two in kind of a dialectic uh, for us to talk about the purpose of education. And I really do, I stand by it. I think it's a great way to start the semester. <laughs> um, but uh, but that really is the, the core, I think, for a lot of the difficulties in how we teach writing is how it is we conceive of, of the, the teleology of, of education. Do you have any thoughts on that?
1: Oh, God, I got a million thoughts on that. Um, it's, it's exactly the tension that we're always trying to negotiate, right? Like, I, I want my students to be well-armed to um, survive within the machine. Uh, I want them also empowered, should they choose to do so, to take down the machine, um, if, if that's their goal, or opt out of the machine, if that's their goal. Um, I, I don't think we can teach writing effectively from a purely kind of instrumentalist point of view. Mm. Like, I'm going to teach you how to produce these particular things that the world will pay you for. Mm. Um, now the, the sort of way of thinking that I prefer, um, I think ultimately does prepare students to be able to do that should they find themselves in those, those occasions. Um, but they also get to hold on to some measure of themselves. But, but this is a, this is a balancing act. Um, and I think very much depending on the institution and depending on the students, some places do it a little bit better than others. You know, it is, uh, um, one of the things that, that concerned me and, and then drove the writing of the book was the disconnect that I saw between schooling and learning. Mm. Um, that students were, very eager learners, but they didn't see, see school as a place where they learned all that much. It was just this other thing. And so I I think it's a worthy goal to try to bring those two things into alignment as much as possible. That school is about learning. Um, but we always will be serving, serving many masters. Um, and these things will be contentious. It's, it's, just my concern that we we a lot of the the energy and the rhetoric about this is about things like employer aligned skills. Um, we have to help students develop employer aligned skills. Right. And uh, I wrote about this in the blog recently too. You know, we, we got we have to prepare students for the um, for uh, the twenty first century. Um, jobs not the 20th century jobs or the 19th century jobs i guess and they need a 21st century education to do that and and i think like well i'm i was born in 1970 i just turned 49 i was i was educated my education ended my formal education ended in the 20th century and the thing is i'm doing fine in the 21st century <laughs> um i'm doing i'm doing in fact really well uh um you know, I, I have a job in as a market research analyst and, and um strategist where I make much more money than I ever would have teaching college. Um now I deeply miss teaching college and probably would jump at a chance to come back in a second if all the all the stars aligned. But I find my twentieth century education has been very, very adaptable to the twentieth twenty first century. Because I was educated in a way that helped me learn how to learn the things that I don't know yet or when the world changes and um I, I can I can figure those things out. And um you know, I, I went to college with a typewriter mm-hmm. and we're now talking over a video <laughs> uh application on our computers and I, I have no difficulty with this. And I think if we can think of students the same way. Like, let's prepare them to adapt to the world rather than thinking, ooh, they need employer-aligned skills that exist exactly in this time and place. Forget about the employer. Help them become smart. Help them become curious. Help them be adaptable. This is what I think students need, not just to to succeed um, in getting a job and thriving and this kind of stuff, but to be happy. So they can make sense of it. So they can make their choice about their relationship to the machine. I don't know. You put me on this machine metaphor, now I can't <laughs> let go of it. But it's, uh, it really is. I mean, it's 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 true, right? I, I think I think what, how you frame it is that um, we can't just outright reject the machine. Not we can't all go be Thoreau and um, you know who's, who's kind of a trust fund. Yeah, they, thank they God. Right, it, right, <laughs> right? <laughs> right? Uh, and and go off to our cabin and forget. Forget the the worldly places. Um, we do ha- we do have to um, earn our keep and be um, um, try to be financially secure without sacrificing the other parts of ourself. And that's what I, I hope learning in school can do for students. Um, but but we know it's not right. We we know when when you survey students and you see things like the increases in depression and anxiety. Um and concerns about their future and the amount of debt they graduate with or the amount of debt they have when they don't graduate. It's hard to argue that we're doing right by them, you know, as a society.
0: Yeah. And, and it's ironic almost that the, the exact, that the technology that is sort of trying to automate teachers out of jobs and, and therefore kind of ruining the education uh, experience for them. uh, Most of the jobs they're sort of training for, if you do this, sort of career oriented version of education is basically one technology away from disappearing itself, <laughs> uh, you know? And, right. and, and, and right. so you're right. You need, we need to learn how to um, how to be adaptable and how to apply previous knowledge to new situations and learn how to learn what to do in that situation. Um, and I think that, um, um, and incidentally, as you were talking before I move to my next point, um, was you were talking about the kind of idea about school being job training. There was one point in the chapter you call why school uh, you quote Rex Tillerson um, <laughs> when he was CEO of Exxon uh, that I actually just wrote a scowl. I just drew a scowl face in the margin next to this. Um, I'm not sure public schools understand that we're their customer, that we, the business community are your customer. What they don't understand is that they are producing a product at the end of that high school graduation. That is Literally the most dehumanizing language you can address another person in, right? And so, um, it's a way in which we've given over education to this instrumental, um, institution that does reduce the humanity out of people, um, and for a sort of pragmatic end to be used by somebody else, right? To be exploited, um, in, in one term. And so, um, one way I think that you get at really um, powerfully, um, the bulk of the book is is not made up of com- complaining about the situation, but providing solutions. Uh, that's what I love. One, one of the th- great things that I love about the book, it's very practical, particularly when um, coupled with the book that just came out, The Writer's Practice, which is very much a, a practical um, version of the theoretical framework you um, put forth in this book. Um, This is sort of like almost you could use this as a classroom textbook, a syllabus um, in and of itself. Um, But you emphasize – um, the rhetor- understanding the rhetorical situation. Um, right. And so, and I think that really is the basis of all kind of writing is understanding things like audience, um, genre, and, and all those kinds of needs. Do you want to talk a little bit um, as we enter into your practice uh, in classrooms about the importance of that aspect of, of writing?
1: Yeah, for, for me, and a lot of this is rooted in, in being a writer is writing um, you know, there's, with some exceptions, writing is for audiences. We write to communicate and we write, um, for people who have, um, are looking and evaluate, looking at and evaluating our message. We we're trying to achieve a particular purpose. Uh, we are doing it inside a, a, a genre, uh, for that audience, um, often a specific audience and that specific audience has, um, Needs, attitudes, and knowledge that we can analyze and understand, and um, craft our communication to in order to to meet those things. And that is the fundamental underpinning of everything I write. Um, now, it, it takes different forms. When I write fiction, I don't think about the audience all that much consciously. While I'm say I'm drafting, but while I'm editing, I may. But if I'm writing an argument, uh, like I'm. Um, I'm going to try to post a blog arguing tomorrow that freelance journalism journalists have a relationship to publications, uh, very much like adjunct faculty Uh, have uh, relationships.
0: I saw you tweet today that new Republic article. Is that what you're referring to? Yes. yes, I I look forward to that then. Great. Okay. Yeah.
1: So that's, that's turning. uh, I often tweet my blog posts, uh, before they become blog. Well, I tweet and then I'm like, Ooh, I shouldn't just have this on Twitter. I can turn that into a blog post. Um, (laughs) So I I'm, I want to make that argument, and it's going to be for inside higher ed. And so I want to make it in a way that wakes up um, higher education people to the exploitation of adjunct faculty if they're not already alerted to it. And so uh, the beginning of it will urge them to go read this new Republic article. It will ask them to search their feelings about um, the, the plight of freelance journalists once they do read it. I'll ask them to consider, uh, if they're concerned about the, um, ability of these important publications to do their, um, fulfill their role as sort of the fourth estate, these finders of truth and communicators of, um, information. And then I will make a rhetorical move where I say, uh, draw the parallels between those freelance journalists and that institution and adjuncts in the institution. And so this is, this sort of thinking is underneath all of the writing I do. And, um, I, I realized, you know, sort of the start of the journey that wound up in these books. I, I was not asking students to do this kind of thinking. Mm-hmm. And so I, I wanted to find a way to get them to do it. And that involved, um, thinking about the experience of writing, right? The process. This is why, why, um, uh, I call them not assignments or essays, but experiences. And I, I think about, helping them learn through experience, because that's how I learn. I think it's how anybody learns. Um, you know, the, the first experience in the writer's practice, and I, I talk about this um, in Why They Can't Write Too, was an uh, assignment my third grade teacher, Mrs. Goldman, gave me, where she asked us to write instructions for a peanut butter and jelly sandwich and then made us try to make the sandwiches according to our own instructions. Which, uh, much hilarity ensued because we had left it, things out like use a knife to spread the peanut butter and this kind of stuff. And so I started using this in my classes and they were marginally better than third graders because, um, I didn't give an audience. I didn't give a purpose and students mostly, and I, I've done this for tenured professors, by the way, and they don't do any better eat and any better. Uh, without an audience or without prompting, they essentially write a short description of how they make a sandwich rather than a set of instructions for somebody else to make a sandwich. And so if we we don't have that audience in mind, even people we would consider highly proficient writers like college professors, at least we hope they would be, don't write well. And so every experience in the book, everything I have my students do, has an audience, it has a purpose. The students um, have to tell them the, the genre, but they have to sort of understand the genre they're working in. And that's how what I call the the practice for a writer, that's how it's built. That's how they learned, learned the needs, attitudes, knowledge, and habits of mind of writers. And if, if they can build those things, they will learn how to write. Um, there is no terminal proficiency. You're always learning how to write, but they'll they'll be able to extract lessons from everything they write that they can apply to other occasions where they have to write. Um, That's the goal.
0: And and that development of the habit of mind, right? And so as, as you started off, you started talking about writing as thinking, right? This is, this is the benefit that you can bring to whatever job you sort of end up doing, right? Um, is that you've developed a habit of mind that is able to kind of survey a situation and understand what needs to be done and how best to accomplish that goal, right? And so, um, I think I love that how you grounded all that in, in rhetoric. Um, and as you were talking about professors who, didn't do much better with the peanut butter and jelly <laughs> um, and actually I was just talking about this with some friends we were at a, a conference about Batman uh, recently and uh, um, the uh, it, it never ceases to amaze me that the people who teach rhetoric are the worst at employing it in real life <laughs> situations and delivering these papers with no regard to audience and you'd think we would know better but uh, too many of us don't all right and so um, uh, there's something I think underneath that that we've come to also to think of writing, as sort of an instrumental thing um, that is genre based and not necessarily process based. And so I love how you um, replace the word assignments with experiences, which to me rehumanizes the, the act, right. And it, and it pulls off, pulls, it removes it from this kind of instrumental instrumentalist veneer.
1: Yeah. It's, and it's a reminder for me, and it really hit on it. At some point, I, I decided I never wanted to assign another essay, even though I wanted students to write essays. Um, the problem was when I assigned an essay, they would write a five-paragraph essay. Right. Or if they weren't going to write a five-paragraph essay, um, a bunch of sort of emotional baggage attached to the process that they were going to employ because they viewed writing essays through this very particular narrow lens of school. And so I just needed another word. Um and I, I first started using um a framework of writing related problems, which is still actually how I think about it. We're we're gonna solve a particular problem with a piece of writing, a problem defined by the rhetorical situation. Um but then my uh my editor said, People don't like to hear about problems. You need a new name. <laughs> so I said, experiences, because that's what they are. And it's it, it's it's even better than writing related problems. I think because experience really puts the emphasis on the doing rather than the having done, right? That the, the product is, um, it's not incidental to what we're doing. In fact, it's the thing we're, we're heading towards. But the journey is as important to the destination. Um, it, it's like any good road trip. You see as much along the way as you're going to get when you go where you're heading. And if we can, experience was a way for me to keep that in mind as I, I helped students work to not privilege the wrong things and to, to keep my eye on that. Um, but it's hard because there was a long legacy of me trying to help them do as, be as proficient as possible on that product. And I had to sacrifice some measure of product proficiency for learning along the way. Mm-hmm. They, they had to, they had to experience some difficulties and um, run over some potholes and blow a tire and experience the kind of frustration writers do in order to learn more along the way. And that does sometimes result in, in product that is arguably not as good. But I would also argue they would, they learn more along the way and that's has to be the goal, at least as far as, as I see learning to write.
0: Um, absolutely. Uh, and, and I think that um, uh, one of the great ways that I think you kind of propose to um, accomplish this is through the minimization of uh, of grades and uh, the you're sort of elevating self reflections and that sort of thing and and I have to say I tried that today in in my at the end of my uh, uh, class that I was just telling you about and I had them all uh, do the. What is something you know now that you didn't know before? What is something you can do now that you couldn't do before? And how did you come to learn these things? And and I guess some really um, profound and, and sort of inspiring answers. And there's something about that self-assessment that is ultimately perhaps more valuable in the long term uh, than any kind of grade I can provide on a particular assignment.
1: Yeah, my my belief is students know when they've learned something. And uh, they, they know it intuitively. And then the the reflection or the guided reflection, the sort of prompts you, you talk about there, are to help the students draw out and articulate what they've learned. And adding that in into my own classes had a huge impact because I knew students were learning and, and they would, and I could sense their, their improved enthusiasm about writing. But it wasn't until I added in this very, purposeful and specific reflection, that we started to articulate it for each other. And particularly to do it in a, in a class context like like you're doing, where they can share and um, hear from others and then reflect on what others are doing, it creates a sort of virtuous circle, I think, of them getting deeper and deeper into the experience they've had and then the experience they're going to have next. Um, I was really influenced on this by a, a book called The Meaningful Writing Project, where um, they essentially surveyed students to see what they'd done, what writing they had done in college that they felt was most meaningful. And to hear that testimony, which is ultimately what it is, testimony, uh, a kind of witnessing, right, like I experienced this and this is what I got out of it, um, is really powerful because it lets you know what is meaningful to students. And if you can give them a chance to express that, to me, that's far better than me kind of putting a grade on it. Um, because, you know, it's like, uh, I, am sure you have this. You, you've been, you've been teaching a while. Um, if, when we are sort of grading under, under traditional scoring or rubrics or whatever, um, just about every writing instructor who's, who's been working for a while and maybe not even all that long, you kind of know the grade within a paragraph. Oh yes. Right? But the the, the the letter that that thing is going to get is is usually readily apparent um very very early on. Sometimes within a, a, a plus or a minus um occasionally you'll have a student that catches fire at the end and and can reclaim something they lost earlier. Although that always just says they didn't leave themselves enough time to revise <laughs> and uh yes. you know Uh, get the fire in there from the beginning but that's a pretty um, limited piece of feedback really like the algorithms that are so impressive with putting their grades on it within a minute like if that's all you want me to do i can do that with a high degree of accuracy. accuracy also by reading the first paragraph of everybody's essay but that's not the job that's not what writing teachers do we are looking for what has been done, what can we diagnose as perhaps a, a troubled spot in their process, how they read, how they write, how they think and, and help them work through that. So if students can be doing that in the same way I am to their work, then really I am fading into the background. I am, I am leaving my role as sort of central to their understanding of writing because ultimately I'm not only, um, You know, I'm going to disappear from their lives. Mm. The writing teacher does not, um, is not present to read their writing after the semester. So uh, I think they have to be empowered to, you know, be their own writing teacher, um, once we're done with them and and reflection, that sort of reflection on the, the metacognitive process, if we want to get fancy about it, is really, um, really invaluable. And it was kind of the last part of this, this larger process that clicked into place for me. Um, it, it's It's been a, a long iterative um, journey, and I'm thankful that that did click because I think without it, it would have been a, a less satisfying um, experience or, or method.
0: Yeah, and as we push to the end here, um, I just want to kind of um, highlight a couple of things that you just talked about. One is um, I think a lot of this process empowers students to be kind of to find some way to be enthusiastic about what they're writing about right and I think that's a key thing that gets left out of assignments where we're asking them to care about things they don't innately care about or can't find even a connection to something they do care about uh, And so I feel like that's one thing that the the experiences that you design allow people to do because they come from a number of different genres you're asking them to write different, uh, in different ways for different audiences, for different purposes. Um, and even like to the point where you do creative, uh, sorts of writing. And and that's something that I have found to be really useful in literature classes when I'm sort of, at some points, just tired of reading literary analysis papers that I know I can already, I already know where they're going before they even pick up the paper. Right. And so, um, (laughs) and, and so for example, for my, um, Uh, I taught a class on Kafka and instead of having them write, there was no way they were going to write anything original or interesting about Kafka that hasn't been said a million times. And so I had them take some work that we read that, that semester and apply it to uh, as a way to understand some social or political issue going on in the world today um, or to understand another work of art or something like that. And that allowed them to choose things that they were really, truly interested in and to kind of think still rhetorically, um, but in a uh, a kind of unique way. And I got much better papers out of that. And I think they had a better time doing it. And I think they really got more out of that experience. Um, you have many. um um, assignments, suggestions, uh, in or excuse me, <laughs> experience suggestions experience. <laughs> in uh, in these two books, and uh, and I really can't recommend them enough um, for people who are um, maybe at a point like I am, where I'm just sort of wanting to reboot my practices in teaching, or if you're just starting out teaching, or or for any other reasons, if you want to write yourself, I think there's a lot uh, to be said by reading these books. Um, do you have any kind of final thoughts um, on the experiences themselves and what they offer.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, um, I do some of these experiences. Um, they are a a way of framing my own work. Um, and and some of them um, were developed that way. I think like when I'm going to do something, what is it that I'm trying to do? There's a, there's an analytical writing, um, uh, experience in here, uh, where each experience, for the sake of your audience, it starts with a question, um, and the question is, "What's going to happen in the in parentheses below?" It's playing the pundit, and one of the things I do at Inside Higher Ed is punditry. Right, I, I try to predict trends or the future or or what I foresee, and all the experience does is sort of um, put what I do when I do that into a, a process that somebody who maybe hasn't done before can can follow in order to produce the kind of analytical writing that gets done when we ask this question what's going to happen uh and the 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 goal um to, to framing that way is exactly what, what you're talking about to to get students to see what they see in the world what they experience in the world um what they're thinking about what they're concerned about is translatable into writing and communication um in the book, there are many quote unquote academic forms. There's a, there's numerous rhetorical analyses. There's um, a summary and response for just a sort of core um, part of kind of academic writing. There's uh, what could arguably be called research papers, although of course, uh, knowing me, I would not call them that. Um, <sighs> although the processes that can get you to something that looks like that. Uh, the the um i'm glad to hear that you see it as something that can be used in the classroom because that's that's the the goal um in fact um there's far too many to do in a single semester um on the first year writing classroom but it's it's something that can um be used be introduced in one class and continued in another with a different purpose it's something the students can follow and you can even choose different paths through in the appendix i have different um sort of sample Syllabi that I you know could be used in, in something like a first year writing class, mm-hmm. uh, depending on on your interests and the type of students and, and goals. And it's the book um, this may go without saying. It's the book that I would use in in my own class. It's how I, I it's how I did approach my own class. They were my assignments before they were the experiences in this book. Um, and I, I think the other thing I think is important for people to know is that they are highly adaptable. I wrote it very very specifically so. They could be introduced and then they could be altered by the instructor um, based on on the needs of their students. And in fact, a couple of people who are using it um, have already sent me what they're doing, mm-hmm. the adaptations, and they're awesome. Mm-hmm. And uh, if there's ever a second edition, um, they will be uh, put in as alternatives with credit to those people for putting me on to them. So it's a... Um, it's a book that's meant to be taken into conversation rather than kind of, um, the book that I, um, wrote it as an alternative to they say, I say, if you know that book, I wanted to write a book that in many ways was, um, the opposite of that, um, entirely non-prescriptive, open, adaptable, um, and remixable according to the student in the class. So, um, I hope I've achieved that. I did. I did my best. Um, well, I, and I, um, if, if, it's a, if it does well, I can I can take another swing at it. Probably.
0: I think you have, and 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 folks who are um, I think invested in they say I say, which I have found useful to a degree at times. Um, other
1: same, times, less. Same. So. I mean, me me too. Yeah. I mean, it's it's a book that I've I have used in class. I'm not. Yeah. Um, uh, I'm not saying this out of sort of professional jealousy or, or um, lack of exposure experience
0: yeah no no um but and in fact um i think the most successful (laughs) i've ever had that is after having a most of a semester of writing instruction i had them read that book and write a kind of academic book review of they say i say um and (laughs) and that was like i think the most useful i've ever found it um but um but folks who are support that book i think generally come down uh as their one of their primary interests is quality sentences, right? Uh, And and quality paragraphs. And so I think that what you very convincingly argue in this book and in these books, excuse me, there's why they can't write and the writer's practice, I think do work as a tandem. Um, But I think what you very convincingly argue here is that when Grammar breaks down, becomes stylistically clunky or, or whatnot. It's either because the student isn't invested in what they're writing about or they're still struggling to achieve the idea. Like, uh, And and so um, the informal sort of thinking through process allows them to come to a better understanding, which will kind of more organically um, encourage them to polish this for an audience because it's something they're invested in and proud of. Uh, and, and so I think um, – it's a much higher goal, I think, uh, at achieving the same um, at the same end. There,
1: yeah, I, I mean, it's how I work, is how I think as a writer and work as a writer, and it also allows for the development of, God forbid, style, right, exactly. <laughs> and uh, u- unique style, where uh, they are steadily more invested in expressing themselves in a the way. They express themselves. I mean, some of the uh, there was a a highly negative uh, response to the writer's practice that was published yesterday at the the blog for a a sort of conservative think tank. So, um, just sort of um, by by disposition, they were not going to like this approach. But it, um, I was super happy that it called my style lively and engaging. <laughs> <It> was, <laughs> how it dare was, you? <laughs> uh, uh, it was, it was, and, and it was, and meant it as a compliment too. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, that's, that's how I want to be. I'm in, I am in the marketplace of, of trying to draw attention to my work. And one of the ways I can do that is to be lively and engaging. Um, you know, thinking, thinking about your, your remark about, uh, um, people who teach rhetoric and, and the papers and the conferences, if if the goal is to be lively and, and engaging, those papers would be sound different right. and be different. Um, if the goal is to sort of display erudition and um, preparation and membership in the guild or the tribe, they sound like they contend to sound. And that sounds critical and, and maybe it is, but, not as harsh as, as it comes across it's it's meeting the expectations of the, of the audience in, in one sense and that if you're going to prove worthy of sort of the scholarly community you need to sound like a scholar mm. uh, but if the goal is to communicate and draw audience outside of that community you need probably a little bit of a different style and again me being kind of a little bit outside this place to my advantage at the same time people are inside um, read the book and think like this guy is a clown. <laughs> he's, <laughs> he's like, right. um, but this is this is writing. We shouldn't we shouldn't we shouldn't expect students' writing to all sound the same. Why do Why would that be? Uh, you, you you're saying, you know, you remark about how you know where they're going before they go. It's like, yeah, we don't. That's that, that's not a necessarily desirable. No, <laughs> that's
0: why <laughs> right? I get rid of that assignment when that happens. Right? No. Right. Well, and I can tell you, um, folks who teach writing, I think, do love this. I know Plow Publishing um, followed up with a tweet I had about this saying how much they highly recommended this book. Um, and uh, I think that anybody who does teach writing or is interested in really engaging and serving their students well, I think will do well to to, to look at these books. Um, I know that I personally have um, um, talked to my department chair, Dr. Jess uh, Costanzo, into um, having a department um the developmental reading of this book over the summer. Um, uh, and I, I know that they're all going to, um, gain a lot from it. It's, it's a tremendous book. It's a tremendous achievement. It's a great service, uh, to those of us who teach writing. It gives me a lot of hope for ways to serve people inside the machine. Um, <laughs> so, uh, John Warner, I really can't thank you enough. It's been such an honor, uh, to speak with you. I've been a big admirer of yours for a long time. And, uh, and I'm really grateful for you to come on the show.
1: Oh, it's my pleasure, and maybe we'll do it again sometime.
0: Uh, anytime. Uh, you have an open invitation, sir. Um, and those of you who are listening, uh, get in contact with me. Uh, sectarianreview at gmail.com is our uh, email address. We also have a Facebook page. There's a Twitter account. If you're listening to the show, uh, go to your favorite pod, podcatcher and subscribe if you're not subscribed, and certainly leave a review to help other people find us. Um, but whatever you do, make sure you go out and find Why They Can't Write and The Writer's Practice by John Warner. Uh, You'll get a lot out of it. For John Warner, I am Danny Anderson, thanking you for listening to another episode of The Sectarian
2: Review.